Well, many of you know Elijah, but I just have the great joy of introducing him for a moment. We're gonna pray for him, but he helps to give leadership to the Global Prayer Room just down the road here and been here 10 years, married, super cute kids, like outrageously cute. And I'm just so blessed by Elijah's ministry, the word that he is bringing to us and our spiritual family. So we're just gonna take a moment and pray for him, just stretch out your hand toward him. Father, I thank you for your servant. I thank you that you're raising up men like Elijah in our generation. Father, I ask that you would touch him by the grace of your spirit, that you would anoint his words and that there would be a spirit of revelation that would touch our hearts as we hear your words. Lord, release your great mercy and your kindness in Jesus' name, amen. Let me just pray for Afghanistan. Let's just take a time to pray for Afghanistan. Lord, we ask you right now that you will visit your church. We ask for mercy. Lord, remember mercy. You said in Joel 2, who knows if the Lord will leave the blessing behind. Lord, we ask for today, for day of salvation for Afghanistan. We ask you, Lord, that you will change the conversation in that land. What enemy meant for evil. We ask you, Lord, that this will be the hour for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That the knowledge of Christ will cover Afghanistan as water covers the sea. Lord, we ask you for your name's sake. We ask you, Lord, that you would arise. That you will make your son famous in Afghanistan. That you will prophesy over that land. I am the Lord and there is no other. So, Lord, let your word prevail. Let it run swiftly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning. It's good to be with you today. Um, a couple, uh, about a week ago, Isaac reached out to me and said, hey, can you preach at FC on the theme of intimacy? And so I responded back to him, yes, I will preach on Jacob's trouble. <laughs> and he said, you know, wow, that's the ultimate intimacy that we can get. And I said, you know what, you're actually right. So that I'm going to title this message, Jacob's Trouble for Lovesickness. Now, I grew up in a countryside of Korea in a, uh, amongst the rice paddies. And I grew up um, just a place where no one knows of, uh, in a small home with parents who prayed day and night. My father had a had a schedule every day that he would pray seven hours in tongues every day. And he would pray. And I still remember, the, you know, it was about Thursday evening as I was getting my message done. All of a sudden, the Lord just, rem just reminded me of the memories of how I was raised and how he led me here and how he established me for the last 10 years. And I couldn't, I couldn't uh, help but to remember how it was, you know, I was probably eight, nine years old. And you wake up in the middle of the night. And it's like two or three o'clock in the morning. And I can hear my father singing in tongues to Jesus. And that was so norm for me. Like I grew up in that context where that's norm. Every father will pray at two o'clock in the morning, right? <laughs> and And then as I... You know, I remember during that time, it was when my, my father said to me, he said, Elijah, your assignment is to be a voice in your generation. 
he sent me, I remember very clear that I was nine years old. He sent me down and said, you're going to be a voice in your generation and you're going to have to learn how to speak English. <laughs> so he, you know, this is how Korean culture works. You don't get to contribute your opinion. They tell you what to do and you just do it. So I didn't really have a choice, you know. And so my brother went to China, learned Chinese. And I, you know, went to Canada for a bit and learned English. And my dad wanted my sister to run Russian. Uh, he had a big dream, you know, um, older for the sake of gospel. But I remember it was during that time he said, you know, you have to know the Bible. You know, you, whatever, everything in life has to be built upon this word. So at the age of nine, he made a, he decided that I was going to have a daily routine, okay. I didn't have a choice. He just one day came up with a schedule and I would read 10 chapters of the Bible every single day at the age of nine. And on summer breaks, he would intensify that to 30 chapters a day. You know, as, as, as wonderful as it may sound, it was tormenting. You know, it's, it was not, it didn't work out really well. Now it did. The Lord worked everything for together for good. Amen. But I just so appreciate men and women who didn't give me an American dream. Like my father not once told me I need to get a better grade or I need to get a better job or like not once. I'm, I, I don't remember having that conversation with my dad. He had a one thing that he wanted to make sure that I get it. He said, your job is to be wherever God tells you to be and simply do what he tells you to do. Then you will be successful, son. That, that was the one thing he made it super clear to me. And then the second thing he always told me, and this is nine years old Korean having a conversation. Can you imagine this? Like you go to school and he said, no, what did your dad tell you to do? Well, he told me to be more like Jesus Christ. Like that was one thing he always told me. He said, Elijah, your goal is to be more like a character of Christ. And that has been the hardest assignment and a mandate. Like my dad always preached to me in 101, Romans 8, 29. It is for that you will be conformed into the image of his son. So I'm asking the Lord for grace as we, as we share this message. Uh, what seems to be a heavy subject, Jacob's trouble. But like I shared, that this is a message of intimacy. It really is. It doesn't get more intimate than this. So what I want, the point of my message is not to convince the certainty of this truth. I think Mike has done this in the past and many of our teachers have a lot of messages about this. My goal is to explain the purpose of God. Now let me first explain to you what Jacob's trouble is. When we say Jacob's trouble, it simply means the great tribulation. This is what Jesus referred to as the great tribulation. The Hebrew prophet Jeremiah called the great tribulation as Jacob's trouble. It is the trouble like never before in the past, nor will ever will be unprecedented, unequal time of trouble. But when you look at the Bible, the Bible doesn't only emphasize there's coming a future reality like this. It says it gives us understanding of why it's happening and what the Lord is accomplishing. I remember the, one of the first leadership lessons when I came here at IHOP was that Mike told me that know the why behind the what. 
Very important principle. He said, you know, whether it's a Bible study or in your leadership principle or in your parenting, you have to understand why you do certain things. You have to know the why behind it, why those rules and things are there. And I like to apply this very principle when I study the Bible, specifically the subject of the end times. I like to ask the question, Lord, let me see what you see and let me feel what you feel when you look at these things. You know, over the years, I wrestled with this, some of these hard truths. Like, like it, at first, it felt like I'm comfortable. Why would God, like good God, allow certain things like this? Yet, when you begin to understand that Bible is not silent about those questions, you know, the kindness of the Lord is that He gives us answers. He explains the why. He says, I'm not only executing, I'm not only performing my judgment, I am accomplishing. Like, I have an intention in my heart. Like, this is the comfort that gives. Here, look at Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah 23, 20. It says, the anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intent of his heart. In the latter days, you will understand it perfectly. Here Jeremiah says, the Lord is in charge. Devil is not in charge. The Lord is in charge. Devil is involved. The wickedness of man is involved. But beloved, let it be crystal clear. God is in charge. He is going to complete what he has started. So the, the prophet Jeremiah first reminds us, he's the one who's executing. He's the one who's performing. But he doesn't just stop there. The goal of Jacob's trouble is not just to perform punishment. That's not it. There's something he's accomplishing through the judgment activities. Judgment is a means to fulfilling a greater purpose. This, in this we take comfort. Because we know the goal is not just to prove our guilt and prove our wrong. The Lord says, no, I'm about to bring something far bigger than that. So the question that I ask is, what is the purpose? The Lord promises and he prophesies that we will understand this perfectly. He says, I'm going to give you understanding. You will under, when he says you will understand this, this is not just the, the plan. When he says this, he says you will know what I'm accomplishing. And you will communicate that to your generation. Now before we get to the meat of the conversation, it's important that we have a proper perspective of Jacob's trouble. Like right interpretation. You know, when you hear phrases or statements like, there will be the greatest, unprecedented, unequal time of trouble. As humans, we can't help but to ask, how can the God of the cross, who loves us so much to a point where he will bear our cross, he will take on our transgression, why would he allow such trouble and suffering in the land? And I, like I mentioned that, Scripture answers us those questions. Scripture is not silent about those issues. Oftentimes we're not aware, but the Lord actually explains us in his kindness. This is why. This is what I'm doing. So in Jeremiah chapter 30, this is within the same context of the Lord prophesying Jeremiah, uh, Jacob's trouble. So the phrase Jacob's trouble comes Jeremiah 30 verse 7. And as he prophesies this, he begins to explain why he's doing this. This is verse 11. For I am with you to save you, declares the Lord. I will not make a full end. I will discipline you in just measure. And I will by no means leave you unpunished. Now I want you to catch the phrase, discipline 
in just measure. The Lord interprets the greatest trouble that humanity has ever seen as just measure. Meaning this is the least severe means in order to save. Like catch this in verse 11. He says, I am with you to save you. I want you to catch that. To save. This is not to destroy, but to save. This is my salvation work. The judgment of God is salvation. This is why in Isaiah 26 it says, when your judgments are on the earth, the wicked will learn righteousness. See, the, when the judgment of God comes upon the earth, God begins to teach us what he's like, what his ways are like. He's about to save humanity and the story of Israel. Like think of, think of this way. Any doctor, when you have to do an extreme surgery, any surgery or surgical procedure is extreme. It's bloody. It's painful. But no one will walk out of surgery and say, oh, that doctor was so unmerciful. Like he did an open heart surgery. Like he's so unmerciful. Like we wouldn't assess that surgery that way, right? If you do, you know what that doctor is going to tell you? You don't have any idea what condition you are in. Your condition requires that I do an open heart surgery. It required to be bloody because you were that sick. It was meant to cure you, not to destroy you. In the process, yeah, there's some things to be taken out. But if you have four-stage cancer, it requires to do open heart surgery. So the, when you look at Jacob's trouble or great tribulation, if it feels too severe, that only tells us how much we're disconnected to the real condition of our sin. It only tells us how much we're unaware how far we are from where we need, where we need to be healed. So, the, so it, when Israel comes out of this story, this great tribulation, this is how she interprets. When you look at Psalm 118, she, this is a song that she's singing as she receives Jesus as her Messiah. But in this song, she's not accusing of God's leadership. Like, where were you in the midst of my suffering? She doesn't do that. Like, how can a good God and merciful God allow the time of darkness? Instead, she comes out of Jacob's trouble with a heart of thanksgiving and a song of praise. And she begins to prophesy, you have done this because you're good and your steadfast love endures forever. So these are her words. Psalm 118, verse 18. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Did you hear that? You have disciplined me severely because you didn't want it to give up on me. It's because you did not want to forsake me. Jesus did really say in Sermon on the Mount, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Does that sound too violent to us? Now, obviously, Jesus is being figurative here. But the statement Jesus is making is, do not play with sin. Do not take sin lightly. It is not toxic. It is deadly. It will lead you to eternal damnation. So the Lord is telling Israel, Jacob's trouble is not too severe. It is I'm too desperate to save you. Israel, I cannot give up on you. I will not forsake you to a lake of fire. I have to intervene. So this is Israel understands this leadership. So she comes out and says, for you are good. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. 
and his steadfast love endures forever. Now that, now that we have a proper perspective of Jacob's trouble, I want to get to the answer of like the question of what is the purpose. Now before I get there, let me just remind you that all, you know, there is not one answer. You know, all the, all the activities of God in the Bible is always 10-dimensional, right? God does one thing and he's accomplishing 20 different things. And our finite mind can always fully comprehend his infinite wisdom. In, so likewise in Jacob's trouble or the great tribulation, the Lord is doing all kinds of things and accomplishing salvation and judgment and redeeming and restoring. Like he's working in all different ways. Yet at the same time, I believe the scripture is precise, crystal clear what the ultimate purpose is. While there are many details, the scripture reminds us this is what God is after. This is his aim. This is what he's trying to accomplish. And you will understand this intention of my heart perfectly. This is where we come to Jeremiah 30 and 31. Now Jeremiah 30 is the phrase Jacob's trouble is first where it first appears. But what's significant about Jeremiah 30 is that in Jeremiah 30, Prophet Jeremiah reiterates what he said in Jeremiah 23. In the, the anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has accomplished the intentions of his heart in the latter days. So Jeremiah quotes this truth word for word. But in Jeremiah 30, he doesn't only point out the fact that God has a purpose in Jacob's trouble. He goes as far as to specify what that is. He says, this is what he's after. So we go to Jeremiah 30. Jeremiah 30 verse 22. He says, you shall be my people and I will be your God. Behold, the anger, the fierce anger of the Lord would not turn back until he has performed and until he has accomplished the intentions of his heart. In the latter days, you will understand this. At that time, so look, so Jeremiah already started with, I will be your God and you shall be my people. And then he goes, you will understand the intentions of my heart perfectly. And just in case we miss the point, just in case we miss the message, which we're prone to, right? Not because we're trying to be wrong, but oftentimes the dullness of our heart, we don't fully, we're not real intentional when we read the Lord's word. So we tend to miss the Lord's message. So the Lord goes, you know what? I'm not going to leave you to your understanding to catch what I'm after. I'm going to remind you once again. So in verse the very next verse, by the way, chapter 30 and chapter 31 has no chapter breaks. Jeremiah didn't put the chapter breaks there. This is in a one flow. He says, at that time, after Jacob's trouble, declares the Lord, I will be the God of Israel and they shall be my people. I will be your exceeding great reward and you will be my treasured possession. The goal of the great tribulation is not just the punishment, the Lord wants to refine his people so that they will be his treasured possession. Now, just in case we still overlook this, the magnitude of this message, just in case we go, you know, I guess it's there. In case we do that, the Lord knows us so well, and in his kindness, he goes, you know what? I'm going to say one more time. So that you get this crystal clear what I'm doing here. 
that you not only know that there is coming a time of trouble and these things will take place, but that you would actually understand what I'm accomplishing through this. So in chapter 31, as the Lord promises and prophesies the new covenant, this is the famous passage. I want you to catch what the new covenant is all about. The new covenant is so that he will circumcise our hearts to put a new heart that we will have the understanding. We will have eyes to see what he's accomplishing. So he says in Jeremiah 31 verse 33, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them and I, and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. He said, in case you missed that message, let me say that one more time. And the Lord goes again in chapter 32. Let me say that one more time, Israel. That what, the reason I'm allowing this, this time of pruning, time of discipline, is so that I will finally be your sitting great reward. And I will have you as my treasured possession. Israel, I don't want to be just your Messiah. I don't want to be just your savior. I will be your supreme treasure. You will find the Lord your God as your beloved. And I will accomplish that through the great tribulation. And in case we still overlook this message, which we are prone to, which I'm prone to. Are you with me? Well, oftentimes we just read our Bible like our journal. And we don't fully grasp the intensity and the intention of the Lord's heart. The unrelenting vision that God has to go out of his way to communicate time and time and time again. He says, did you catch that? Did you hear me? Or in case we just missed that and we just go over to the next chapter and next verse. The Lord, you know what? I'm, gonna, I'm not going to leave this vision to your understanding. I'm going to make this crystal clear that you don't miss this. So he prophesies again in Zechariah 13. Zechariah 13 is one of the most terrifying passages in the Bible because it tells us the outcome of Jacob's trouble, which is verse 8. But at the same time, Zechariah 13 is one of the most wonderful passages in the whole Bible because it does not end with verse 8. It ends with verse 9. The Lord makes it clear that Jacob's trouble is a means to an end. Israel, I will accomplish my vision. And here it is. Zechariah 13, 8 through 9. And it, shall, and it shall come to pass in all the land that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die. And one-third shall be left in it. Now when you read this, just ask the Lord, Lord, give me a divine groaning. Give me your pain, what you feel when you look at the Jewish people. Like it doesn't get any clearer than this. The outcome will be two-thirds. I don't even know what that means. But the Lord makes it crystal clear, this is not, this is going to be severe, but least severe. This is the mercy of God in his leadership. And the, but the, here, here it is. The reason why this passage becomes wonderful and merciful and kind is because it does not end in verse 8. Verse 9, I will bring the one-third through the fire and will refine them as silver is refined. This will call, they will call upon my name, and I will answer them. And I will say, this is my people. And each one, every single Jewish heart, both young and old, will say, 
the Lord is my God. I will be your God and you shall be my people. Israel, I will accomplish my vision. This is the purpose of Jacob's trouble. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean that I will be your God and you shall be my people? What it means is found in Song of Solomon. So, you know, Jewish rabbis call Song of Solomon the holy of holies of the whole scripture. Because it encapsulates the essence of the Bible theology. In eight chapters. In Song of Solomon, the bride says, I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. Now, this phrase is the essence of the whole theology of Song of Solomon. In chapter 1 through 4, in chapter 2, the bride says, my beloved is mine first. Meaning, if you will meet my need, then I will be yours. Lord, if you will bless me and if you allow certain things in my life, then I will consider serving you. But in chapter 4, the bridegroom begins to unveil his heart. His ravished heart. In chapter 5, after she has tasted what the bridegroom is really like and how far he's willing to go, she's lovesick for the bridegroom. And in chapter 6, she comes out. After chapter 5, she comes out and she declares, I am my beloved no matter what. No matter what it costs, I will follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Wherever he goes, I will follow him. And he alone will be my exceeding great reward. It says in Psalms, whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My strength and my flesh may fail. Lord, you are the strength of my heart. And you alone my chosen cup and my portion forever. So the bride comes out of the encountering the heart of the bridegroom. And she says, no matter what it costs, I will go. You, I am yours only, Lord. And you are my only inheritance. This is where she says, so this is about 4,000 years of Israel history, transformation. It's about from serving the Lord based on our needs and based on our standard to after seeing his heart, the bride begins to connect to the Lord. Say, Lord, how far would you let me go? How abandoned would you let me be? You have become my magnificent obsession. You know, this is what I say after 4,000 years, God is not just trying to prove that he is Israel's Messiah. They are not just going to reluctantly agree that Jesus is the Messiah. Isaiah 26, it says, in that day you will sing with your mouth this song, your name, Lord, and the fame of Jesus is the desire of my soul. God wants to be their heart's desire, not just their Savior. He will be found as their spring treasure. And the Lord says, this is what I'm accomplishing. And, and in case we overlook the magnitude of this message, the Lord virtually sealed the 4,000 years of Israel history with this phrase. Now I'm about to give you in five minutes, 4,000 years of the theology of Israel. Do you believe me? I see doubt in your eyes. You should live by faith, not by sight. But I want, I'm, I'm, I'm going to ask you, for the next five minutes, don't look at your phone. Don't look at someone else. Just stay with me. I'm going to prove to you because whether this is the Lord's wanting reality or not, you got to get it from the Bible. I'm going to prove that this is the Lord's wanting reality, not just in Jacob's trouble, but from, the ch from choosing of Israel, from delivering Israel through Exodus, 
giving them a tabernacle, giving them the worship, and, giving, and, and even through the trouble and through redeeming and restoring, the Lord communicates time and time again, this is my vision. So we start with Leviticus 26. Leviticus 26 is one of the most important passages in the Bible. It's what we refer to as the Old Covenant, Mosaic Covenant. Leviticus 26 is like a key to unlock the whole Old Testament. And it's also a key to unlock the end time storyline, the, the reason why it happens the way it is. When you go to Daniel 9, Angel Gabriel basically explains to Ga Daniel, hey, Daniel, just so you know the timeline is because of Leviticus 26. That's basically what he says. So this is that significant. Now, it's pretty simple. The, law, the principle is if you obey, you will be blessed. If you disobey, the, the Lord will chastise you. But what's important is that this is a principle that not only applies in Israel's history, it's a principle that still applies to Israel's present, and it's a principle that will affect Israel's coming future, okay? But what's important is that the point of Leviticus 26 is not right or wrong. The point is there's a bigger story. He says, this is the essence of blessing, and this is the essence of chastisement. I have a... One vision in mind, and I want you to catch that. Here it is, Leviticus 26. I will make my dwelling among you, and I will walk among you, and will be your God, and you shall be my people. And then he explains the consequences of his judgments. And at verse 45, he says, But I will for, the sake, for their sake remember the covenant with their forefathers, that I might be their God. So that I might be your exceeding great reward. This is not optional to me, Israel. Both in blessing and both in the times of discipline, Israel. This is not optional to me. I will accomplish my vision. So he goes on in Je Jeremiah 7. Jeremiah 7 is critical passage. This is the passage that Jesus quotes as he cleanses the temple, right? He says, you have turned my father's house into a den of robbers. When he uses the phrase, den of robbers, he's quoting Jeremiah 7. And in Jeremiah 7, whenever Jesus or the apostles quotes one phrase of the Old Testament passage, they're quoting the whole message of the chapter, okay? So Jesus was basically saying, house of prayer, this is what the house of prayer is about. And he says, go read Jeremiah 7, what I said to you. So Jeremiah 7, it's a critical passage. The Lord says, for I did not speak to your fathers. In the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings or sacrifices. You know how shocking this might have sound to Israel? It's like this would have been heretical if any Jew would have heard. It's like, Jeremiah, do you, were you not, do, are you, did you forget that God came down on a mountain and gave us the, the worships, you know, worship system, sacrifices and offerings? It's like, what do you think that we are enduring to read Leviticus? Like, it's because the Lord commanded. And the point of the Lord is like, no, that's not, that's not the essence. It's, the, it's not about that. The activity, when it misses what it's about, the, if you forget the reality after the activity, then, then the, the activity itself can be in vain. So the Lord says, this is not what I'm after. This is what I'm after. So verse 23. But this is what I commanded them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. 
It wasn't just about having a worship service in that city. It says, Israel, that, 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 that expression was on to produce a day and night reality that I am yours and you are mine. Never forget, Israel, that this is how unrelenting I am. But Israel, for centuries, they don't catch this message, just like us oftentimes. We don't understand what he's after. So we only are so committed to the activity itself. So they get to a point where Hosea won. This is where the Lord, in his pain, begins to write a certificate of divorce. Now, the Lord never actually divorces Israel. Because why? His compassion is stronger than their sin. His mercy prevails. So he actually says, my heart recoils within me. Israel, how can I give up on you in Hosea 11? How can I forget you? My mercy recoils, burns within me. I cannot give you up. So the divorce never takes place, but he writes the certificate of divorce to get their attention. But I want you to catch the language. What is the essence of separation between God and man? Here he says, then God said, call his name Loami. For you are not my people, and I will not be your God. This is the essence. But like I have mentioned, the love of God is stronger than death. It is stronger. His, his jealousy and his compassion and his affection is more fierce than the grave. Amen. This is not a poetic, poetic language. This, though when Jesus entered into the grave, when he died on the cross... That was a public demonstration. My affection for Israel and the nations is stronger than death. Even death cannot stop my vision. So the Lord begins to prophesy in Ezekiel 37, which we often quote about revival passage. This is, this is, this is a passage about Israel's resurrection. It's a passage about the restoration of Israel. The Lord begins to say, I'm going to open up your grave. If it means me going out of my way to open up the grave, what seems dead, dry bone, I will breathe upon you. I will give you a resurrected heart. I will give you a resurrected mind. I will put new veins and new senses so that I will accomplish my vision. And he, this is what he says. He says, you know what that's all about? You know what I'm about to resurrect you for? He says it in Ezekiel 37. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open up your graves. And I will raise you from your graves, O oh my people. And I will save them from all the backslidings. Oh, how I love that prayer. I believe this is the prayer of God for the church of America. Laodicean church, I will save you from all your backslidings. I will save you from all your compromises. I have a resurrected power to do that. But what does it accomplish? What is resurrection for? This is what it accomplishes. And they shall be my people. And I will be their God. The Lord is so unrelenting. He says, I want to make clear that I'll accomplish the intentions of my heart. So the story of Israel does not end with divorce. As we know, it ends with a consummation of the marriage. This is Hosea 2, one of the most profound and dramatic passages. The Lord begins to reveal himself as a bridegroom God. He says, I am more than your master. I am more than your creator. I am a husband to you. I will betroth you, you to myself forever. But here I want you to catch what, what does it mean to accept Jesus as a husband? What does that accomplish? In Hosea 2, in that day you will call me my husband and no longer 
will you call me my Baal and I will betroth you to me forever. Verse 23. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. So the Lord finally accomplishes the restoration of Israel. After 4,000 years, all this said and done, the Lord says, Israel, I will do this to you. Ezekiel 37. I will be their God and they shall be my people then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel. Do you love those phrases? I, this is my prayer for the church, prayer for Israel. Like I, the way the Lord said it here, the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies my church. Amen. There's a coming a time God is going to do such a work that the nations will know Every tribe, tongue, and language will acknowledge God sanctifies his church. God is committed to his church. God will sanctify. This is his evangelical evangelism strategy. This is how God accomplishes the great commission. I am the Lord and there is no other. And the whole world will acknowledge I am the God of Israel. How? I will be your God and you shall be my people. When that mission is completed, the whole world will know he alone is God and there is no other. This is the vision of God for the nation of Israel, the story of Israel. This is the purpose of God for Jacob's trouble. But here's a question. When Israel fails the vision, what does the Lord do? Well, after 4,000 years, what he will accomplish. But in the story of Israel, when, he, when they fail to catch the vision... How does the Lord respond? This is where our story comes in. This is where the story of Gentiles comes in. The Lord raises up his church, glorified church, in the spirit and the identity of a bride to provoke Israel to the reality of I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. And this is where we get to the story of Ruth. Now first, I want to point out two things in the story of Ruth. Two things are important. Number one is a context. The context of Ruth is significant because it points out that the story of Ruth is in context of Jacob's trouble. It says that when the judges ruled, famine came to the land. It's not talking about some natural disaster. It's talking about specifically Israel broke the covenant, so God's chastisement was upon Israel. So it's a context of Jacob's trouble. It's a preview. But in that context, it also points out the background history. It says... There was a woman named Ruth, and she's a Moabite. Now, this element Moabite connects us back to the story of Numbers 22 to 24, 25. When you go to Numbers 22 to 25, this is a story about a nation of Moab that wants to curse Israel. A king of Moab hears about what God did in Egypt, and he sees this mass number of people, and he hires a false prophet named Baal from all the way from Iraq, and he hires him and he says, hey, I'm so afraid of these people. Can you just come and curse them? So Balaam goes up on the mountain, overlook at Israel. And as he tries to curse Israel, the Lord apprehends his mouth. And out of his mouth comes blessing. Every time he shout a curse, blessing comes out. And he goes as far as to begin to prophesy, I see a star, a scepter coming out of Jacob. And he's going to crush the head of Moab. And the king of Moab goes, what did you just say? You want to die? 
I can kill you right now, Balaam. You better watch your mouth. But Balaam's like, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to say that. Like, I don't know where that came from. Like, this, this is the, the Lord's sovereignty working in through this false prophet. So they're in a dilemma. They got to curse Israel, but they can't. Every time they try to curse, whoever God blesses, no one can curse. If God is for us, no one can be against us. So Balaam goes, I need a different strategy. So he goes down to the mountain. And this portion is made of story, okay. I, I think this is how it happened. He goes down to the mountain and he sees Moses. He says, that guy's a real prophet. I'm a false prophet. I heard what the Lord did with that guy. That guy does face to face with Yahweh. So, and th the reason why I'm imagining this is because Numbers 22 to 24 is happening when Moses is preaching Deuteronomy 28. So Deuteronomy 28, Moses is talking about blessing and the curse. Israel, if you obey, the Lord will bless you. But if you disobey, he will judge you. So Balaam goes into the midst of the crowd and hear Moses preaching the sermon of blessing and the curse. And he goes, wait, did you just say that God will curse Israel? There is a way that I can trick this whole thing and set Israel up against God. And says, so if Israel sins, then God will be against Israel. I don't have to do that. So Balaam and Balak brings out in chapter 25, what do they do? They bring out thousands of Moabite women, Moabite prostitutes into the camp of Israel. And as these Moabite women enters into the camp of Israel, the judgment of God breaks out and 24,000 Jews get killed. The judgment of God just goes through the camp. And the story of Ruth, the writer of Ruth says, She's from that line. She's a Moabite woman. Do you remember the story about Moabite prostitutes who caused Israel's destruction? The Lord's bringing forth a new line. The Lord's bringing forth a Gentile from that history and says, I'm going to bring forth the bride of Christ. I will give you a premier picture of who the bride is and I will introduce myself as a bridegroom king. So she comes on the stage from that history, and her, out of her mouth comes a declaration. What does she say? Your God will be my God, and your people will be my people. When Israel fails the vision, the Lord's going to raise up a glorified church in the spirit and the identity of a bride, and we will provoke Israel to a real identity of a bride. That's what the ultimate provoking Israel to jealousy looked like. Therefore, the Lord begins to quote this story in Isaiah 54. What is Isaiah 54? Sing, O barren woman. Israel, you who sin barren, sing, rejoice. You will no longer be barren. For the one who is, the you will have more children than the one who is married. And Israel goes, how? I am just like Naomi. I am barren. I am fruitless. I have no hope. My present reality is dark. And the Lord goes, because your maker is your husband. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. And that word redeemer is used 19 times in the book of Ruth. That word redeemer, it means kinsman redeemer. I am more than your savior. I am your husband. I am greater Boaz. Israel, do you remember the story of Ruth? How I brought a Gentile to reveal myself and how I will restore you in your trouble. So I have prepared a glorified church. She will not love her life even unto death and stand with you and provoke you to jealousy. So I want to end it with this, my friends. In Song of Solomon chapter 5, when we get to Song of Solomon chapter 5, 
Here's the story of Shulamite, how she provokes the daughters of Jerusalem. How does she provoke the daughters of Jerusalem? Psalm Solomon 5. The Shulamite says, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, tell him that I am lovesick. And the daughters of Jerusalem, Israel, are so provoked by this question, so provoked by this lovesickness, so provoked by this lifestyle, what is your beloved better than another? Shulamite, church, who is your Jesus? Who is your Messiah that is better than another? That you charge so far, that you, go, you, that you will go this far, that you will pay this price. And the Shulamite answers, she says, my beloved is chief among 10,000. He's altogether lovely, and I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. Friends, the way the Lord wants to provoke Israel in the time of Jacob's trouble is through you and I's lovesickness. The question that the Lord is asking us in this moment, this morning, I believe for Foreigner Church, for IHOP, I believe the Lord is asking us, IHOP KC, are you still lovesick? I have KC, am I still your number one? Is your heart still tender and moved by me? So I want to invite you, as worship team come up, I want to end it with this. I had a first opportunity to preach the message of I will be your God and you shall be my people about two years ago in Singapore. And after I preached this message, I did it at the time in context of house of prayer. A young man came up to me and said, Elijah, I've never seen that vision of God being so clear. And the young man said, I have a question for you. How do I do that? If this is what that God is after, how do I enter into this reality? Like how, where do I start? And the Lord whispered to my heart and he says, Song of Solomon chapter 7 verse 10. That's the key. What is Song of Solomon, verse, chapter, chapter 7, verse 10? I am my beloved, and his desire is for me. Friends, the way we enter into the reality of I am my beloved, my beloved is mine, is by drinking from the river of his pleasure. This is not about how much you can work. We do have to do our part. We do have to resolve in our lives to let go of certain things. But the invitation this morning, I feel like the Lord is inviting us. Are you still drinking from the reality and the truth that my desire is for you? Is that still moving your heart? So I wanna invite you this morning, as you're listening to this message, the purpose of God for Jacob's trouble and what God is after. I want you to ask yourself this question. Am I still lovesick? Am I truly lovesick? If this morning, if someone would ask me, what is your beloved better than another? What will be my answer? And if you want to ask the Lord, Lord, I ask for fresh grace. I want to sign up for this reality again. Lord, would you let your grace flow in my life? Would you cause the truth of your desire is for me to prevail over my emotions and over my weakness? I want to invite you. We want to pray together.
Just in 